you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Peter once again this morning towards the end of your Bible. Uh, I do have the verses there printed for you on your outline. This letter from Peter, uh, who was personally approaching the end of his days when he wrote, it's an effort to promote growth in grace and knowledge. I know this because the opening verses say so. In the last verse of the whole book is uh, an encouragement or even a benediction towards growing in grace and knowledge. This important marriage between two concepts, the grace of God given to us in Christ and knowledge about that grace of God in Christ and all the complexities, the wonderful, blessed complexities that go with that. Uh, there's a simplicity in the gospel message, yet there's complexity in understanding and growing in your depth of understanding so that you might be more firm. In fact, that's the progression. Peter celebrates our union with Christ. He celebrates the faith we've been given, the same as the apostles. It's a gift of God. It works itself out that we might know our calling and election by living out virtues that God gives us, knowledge, self-control, uh, love, brotherly affection, all these things enumerated in the early part of chapter 1. Uh, then it goes into really a passionate plea on the part of this pastor. Remember, of all the things Peter is, uh, he's a pastor, shepherd of God's flock. I'm not an apostle. I wasn't an original disciple of Christ. But as a pastor, I relate with his heart when he speaks with passion and purpose about what it is we should be driven to do. That is to teach you, remind you, exhort you, feed you the word of God. Last week, the last few verses of chapter 1, he kind of ends this pastoral plea by noting the importance that we, uh, of our listening to the Word of God, which is truly the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient Word of God. He speaks of, as to how it's inspired, the process itself. And so this leads into a very important chapter. Now, as I have studied this chapter, it's, it, it contains some of the most complex uh, word phrases and, and uh, sentences there are, really, in the whole New Testament. In fact, I've seen some pastors take this uh, 15 sermons through just chapter 2. Now, I'm going to do three sermons through chapter 2. But they will have repetitive themes, and I'll do my best to try to explain some of the more difficult nuances that we'll see without losing sight of the big picture. And the big picture is this pastor wants us to recognize we've got to know the Word of God. All the things we spoke about last week, you have to know and hold on to because there will be, not there might be or you, uh, it's a possibility, there will be false teaching that arises from within us. In fact, it's even a tool of God, you might say, to strengthen the true church. But we have to recognize, the only way we'll recognize false teaching is when we know what true teaching is. So hear God's word as we start a chapter, a whole chapter about warning concerning false teachers. Starting at verse 1, hear God's word. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly." 
And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteousness, that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Let us pray. Father, there is much here, and there's much in this second chapter of Second Peter. Lord, give us uh, diligence as we study and consider. Give us focus and attention and patience even as we work through this, these difficult passages. Lord, we know uh, there is much to be mined here and that we can grow in great ways as we come to understand what you say is a priority. I pray, Lord, that you would help us in this matter of recognizing and identifying and really, in a sense, eradicating a false teaching. Lord, I pray that you would guide us by your word with your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. The driving passion of the pastor, biblically speaking, is to remind people of God's word, to preach and proclaim truth. The power for saving and changing lives is the word of God. Nothing, then, is more tragic than false teachers creeping in and misleading the people of God. Chapter 2 has been aptly described as the burning lava of the apostles' indignation. Nothing would certainly bother a prophet of God or an apostle of God more than seeing, as he preaches and teaches and reveals the word of God as God gives it to him, seeing someone come in, people come in, to create a culture of disbelief, a culture of error. In fact, just for a moment, listen. We'll refer to the text frequently, but I want you to listen for a moment it's several uh, progressive verses about this matter of false teaching amidst the people of God. Now, well, let me be clear about this, uh, this differentiation. I'm not talking about cults that are outside the church that are speaking error. I'm not talking about uh, totally unchristian religions and what they're saying. Yes, they're false teachers in a sense, uh, but they're open about what they're teaching. What's being described here is secretly from the midst of the people of God, false teaching coming up. There's a difference. Some things are obvious to see. Others are subtle. Hear this line of reasoning starting back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 13.5, speaking of false prophets, and prophets that would have been at that time in Deuteronomy in the midst of Israel. Remember, they've come out of Egypt. They're only uh, one nation. They don't have other people. They have not started to intermarry or start to do any of the things they did later. Uh, they are there in their a redeemed state from Egypt, that is, and now God gives warning about prophets, false prophets. And listen to what he says regarding false prophets in Deuteronomy 13 to the church in the Old Testament. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, speaking of a false one, because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. Now, this is an important phrase we'll get to in a moment. Bought them out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So already on the other side of the Red Sea, uh, with the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy, God is warning about shepherds coming from within to convolute the truth, to turn them away from the one who owns them. Later, as the Old Testament plays out, Jeremiah the prophet says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, of the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Jeremiah here is not talking about the Babylonians. He's talking about the people of God who have 
had leaders who have fallen down on the job. The book of Malachi speaks of these priests as well, and it's one of the main reasons why God brought another nation in to discipline them. Now, we get to the book of Acts. The New Testament church begins, simply meaning now Gentiles are added to the people, the covenant people of God. And in Acts 20, starting at verse 28, the apostle Paul warns this way before he's ready to die. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's speaking to the leaders. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So there's a recurring theme going throughout the whole New Old Testament and into the New Testament about from the midst of the body of believers, false teaching will arise. And the commonality is to drive them or turn them away from the truth, which is ultimately embodied in the person of Christ, the one whom we must trust for our everything, for our salvation, for our eternity. The book of Jude is a close parallel to 2 Peter. Listen to what Jude says early in his letter. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. And J. Vernon McGee likes to say they're creeps because they creep in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So there's a progression that is clear, and that brings us now to the opening verses of 2 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 2, in the first couple verses, but false prophets also arose among the people. Who is he sp speaking of? He's talking about in the Old Testament times. It's referred to. False teachers rose up among the people. And by the way, you can think of just a few offhand. Micaiah, speaking with Jehoshaphat, that was one of the key false prophets. There are others uh, that rose within Israel's midst. But there were those who rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So 2 Peter is one long paragraph warning of false teachers. And it reveals a pastoral concern then for protecting the flock. And it's as true today as it's ever been. Maybe more true in some senses, at least to our practical reality. I want to take chapter 2 in three different parts. Uh, today we'll look at the first nine verses, then 10 through 17 next week, and then 18 to the end of the chapter the following week. There are differences in each of these sections, yet they interrelate as well. Now today I want to take it in three sections. The first section, what do we learn about false teachers? And then we'll move on through the text in that way. The last two points in the outline will, take, will be very brief. They're just further things we can glean from this text. We'll spend most of our time recognizing what we learn about false teachers. So let us begin. In verse 1, we learn first about the character of false teachers. Look at verse 1. False prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. There's actually quite a bit of complexity here in the language. Let me try to walk through this verse with you. First, we know, we can say, from other passages, that true teachers are those gifted 
by God to handle the word of truth. Slighting reference is made when he speaks of the prophetic word that's sure that we have in the verses that precede this. So God gives apostles and prophets. He keeps the word sure. We could trust them. And we could trust those who teach according to the word of the apostles and the prophets, for it's God's word. So they're true teachers, definitely. The gauge for whether someone is true or false is Scripture itself. Do they line, align with Scripture? Are they faithful to the Scripture? Do they say accurately what the Scripture says? That's, that's our way or our standard. It's our canon. It's our rule. It's the way we could figure whether someone's false or true. How are they according to the word? False teachers also, please note, character-wise, operate secretly. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Uh, that's clandestinely. That's on the sly, uh, behind closed doors, serendipitously, uh, where they are working in a way that is purposeful. It's willful. It's not just like an error that they're making and then they're continuing to propagate the error. It's they know what they're doing. Uh, they believe in some sense you don't, they do, and they're going to work in a secret way to make you come around to see things the way they see them. Now, I want you to think about this uh, further in the phrase, even denying the master who bought them. This has brought all sorts of discussion and interpretation, as you can imagine. Uh, we have to ask, what does this mean? Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them? Uh, who is them? was talking about false teachers. So, denying the master who bought them. Now, initially, when we hear the word of <clears throat> the term redeem or bought, we think immediately of being bought by the blood of Christ. Uh, however, if we look at this phrase in its context, we see that it means something else. Now, first of all, we know this. Denying the master who bought them, talking of false teachers. We know later in the text that their destruction is sure, that their judgment is sure, that it's predetermined. Uh, the book of Jude says the same thing, that long ago were set apart for destruction. So we know that we're talking about reprobates here, people that are not ordained to salvation. So is it fair to say this is an atonement verse? Is this a redemptive verse about their eternal state? I'd say we can't say that in context. In fact, we know that it's not referring to a false teacher who has been bought by Christ. If you've been bought by Christ, you are his. Uh, later, we see that these teachers are assigned for destruction. So it can't be referring to false teachers who have been bought by Christ's blood. That's not what it means. Secondly, we know it's not only just a reference <clears throat> to Christ dying and then a false teacher deciding to reject that death. In other words, the idea of, of a universal atonement. Jesus just dies for everybody, and then it's up to that person to actual, actualize redemption by trusting in Jesus. Uh, we believe the scripture says when Jesus says that, I know my sheep and I lay my life down for my sheep, he's saying specifically he dies for his sheep. It's not a universal atonement where he sits around biting his nails hoping we pick to apply his blood. When it's, we are bought, it's past tense, it means it's finished, it's applied. It can't mean then that false teachers who have been redeemed or false teachers who have just rejected Christ's somehow universal atonement. Rather, the key to understanding this difficult passage is looking closely at the term and the words, even denying the master who bought, bought them. Lies in several details. First of all, the word for master. The word for master there is despotus, which you've heard the word despot. That has to do with the word for ruler or king that means their sovereign rule. It's not a reference to uh, their compassion, their saviorship, or their redemption, or something they do personally. It's simply a word that describes sovereign over them, the one who is the Lord over them. That's what the word master means in this particular passage. 
Also, it's never used describing the redeeming action of Christ or God, and it's not used often. Secondly, bought, ogorazo is the word. It's used 30 times in the New Testament. 25 of those times, it's absolutely the word bought, not meant for spiritual redemption. It means buying land. It means buying uh, an animal. That kind of buying. There are five times within the uses where it seems to be redemptive. And it means, like in 1 Corinthians, we're bought with a price. There we can say, in context, that's talking about spiritual redemption. What's the price? Christ's blood. By his own blood, he bought us. In those contexts, when it uses bought, it always adds with a price or by his blood. What it is that purchases it? Us. In this text, it's very unusual because master is used in a way that's not usually salvific, and bought is used without a price or without payment. It's simply talking in very general terms. I know this is complex, but I would be amiss not to point out why it says what it says. Now, I think the key to understanding this further is to recognize that remember Peter's talking about the Old Testament context. He talked about the prophets of old. Then he talks about there were, just, there were prophets who also arose among the people. So he's speaking about the covenant people, the people of God. Now, in that sense, if you think of it that way, remembering back to a verse I read earlier in Deuteronomy 13, listen to how God describes the people of God. But the prophet or the dreamer of dreams will be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. Is that salvific? Is that forgiving their sins necessarily? No. He took all the covenant people out of Egypt, physically redeemed them. He bought them out of Egypt. But then after they got out, listen to what Jude says. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So what we're saying is, to bring this down, God buys his people out of slavery in Egypt. In this sense, God owns us. It's declared that he is doing this thing for us. There are believers and unbelievers in Israel. He still bought them out of slavery. In this sense, to deny the master who bought them simply means to deny God. It simply means I don't believe in God. I ultimately deny God's lordship. It's not a specific reference to redemption. This is important as we see how the text unfolds after this. A general reference to false teaching now, or a false teacher, is one who's rebelling against the fact that there is God. And if you think about false teachers, ultimately, even if they look religious, wear a robe, and, and open up a Bible, in the end, sometimes the message they preach totally denies that God is real, or that God could really be revealing himself in this way, and we can't even know who he is. But we'll get there. False teachers work secretly in a sinister fashion. They ultimately deny Scripture, the inspired word of the apostles and the prophets. They ultimately deny God, who's placed them in the visible church. Remember, there will be false teachers among you, the text says. They appear to be part. They will come from your midst. But they will bring what is called destructive heresies. And in context, this means denial of what Peter has just said, which is that the word of God is God's word, and it's inerrant, it's inspired, it's authoritative, it's sufficient. So in the media context is they will speak against the word of God. That's the proper definition for heresy. Now there are levels of heresy which we won't get into this morning, but it's this false or erroneous teaching. And that's the general sense in which it's meant in the New Testament. You know that word has evolved over time to mean all sorts of things. Heresy is usually defined whatever else, whatever anyone else's opinion is but mine. That's heresy. 
That's not what it means technically. Right here we're talking about destructive heresies, errors that bring destruction. Now, let me just say this before we go to our next point. False teachers here doesn't mean anyone who disagrees with Tony. False teachers here doesn't even mean anyone who doesn't agree with us as a church and our creed. That's not false teaching. In fact, there are brothers who I disagree with about baptism. They're not false teachers because I disagree with them about baptism. I think they're wrong, and they think I'm wrong, but we're brothers in the Lord, and we disagree on that point. That's not a false teacher because someone has a different position than mine, and they're openly discussing why they think it's so biblically. Even someone who doesn't have the particular view of God's sovereignty that we have, our confession has, that I think the Bible has, I don't call that person a false teacher unless they're secretly trying to undermine somehow the genuine gospel. I think a lot of ignorance contributes. I think we're all on some level of error because we're, we're, we're human and we err. But that's not a false teacher. We should never get in the habit of calling anyone else a false teacher because they don't agree with me or my position. That's not what a false teacher is in this context. A false teacher here is secret. They're actually going uh, in a clandestine way to kind of change or thwart or manipulate people. Uh, it is manipulative by its very nature. Certain people crept in, the book of Jude says. That's, they have a purpose, and they're sneaking in. Well, who's a false teacher then? Well, I think, in general, since I know you're all probably thinking to some level, well, who is? Well, I think there are certain atmospheres that propagate false teaching more than others. Today, in America, the mainline church, as it's known as, generally is fertile ground for false teaching. There's no accountability from on high to adhere to the inerrant, inspired, authoritative word of God. So therefore, the teachers that are given over the people can have all sorts of varying views of these things because they're allowed to and they're not disciplined for it. And so by the end of the day, the place you find the most false teaching would be under the pale of what's called the mainline church today. And this is how I put it. There's calculated, purposeful propagation of false teaching that happens in the seminary level, especially places that feed these churches. And they're actually taught how to help those poor people get over some of the hurdles they have, the intellectual and cultural hurdles they have, so they can really see what the open will of God is. And they literally have a certain level of training that helps them. In fact, more of their training has to do with how to get people to think a certain way than how to exegete a text or what a creed might say why it says what it says. Pastors do not believe the Bible is genuinely the inspired word of God. Things start tumbling from there. Well, let's look at the next point. That's their character, their influence, verse 2, and many, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So their influence is exploitative. It is definitely moving and influential. Many will follow their sensuality, uh, and many will follow them away from the way of truth that has been described here in Peter and throughout the Scripture. Make no mistake, false teachers arise and exert insidious influence. People then are swept up by it. There's a ref two references here that can kind of give an identifying feature to false teachers. One, sensuality. It's listed as a sign of false teaching. That is promoting their own sensual desires. Sensuality means something that is experienced by the senses. And most typically in Scripture, it's talking about uh, sexual sensuality. It could be other things, though. It could be other physical uh, experiences. 
But generally, this is what we're referring to, what Scripture refers to in its context. But also, greed is listed as one of the signs of false teaching. Uh, again, to promote their own lifestyle, sensuality and greed, both to promote their own personal experience. And think about this for a moment. If right thinking produces right actions, like we say so often, then wrong thinking will produce wrong actions. And part of right thinking is that God has given us his word. And so from there, we have this authority. And even when we disagree about some details, we're striving after living, according to, uh, living our lives according to the word. But if you don't think the Bible's the word of God, then it leaves all manner of things open. In fact, now when culture comes in conflict with what we think the word of God says, we want to seriously weigh that culture might be right because we can say that in our paradigm if scripture is not the word of God. And so there's constantly this tug between culture and scripture or what's said in the Bible. And without fail, false teachers will ultimately cave to whatever culture is saying. Think about how these things work themselves out in the modern church. You see it in the paper just about every week, another denomination, another church who is kind of just overlooking or explaining away some clear Bible text, especially when it comes to the area of sensuality. Uh, think about what churches have done in the area of promiscuity and homosexuality, both those issues, hot-button issues. Uh, promiscuity should be more of a hot-button issue. We seem to always focus on homosexuality, but promiscuity or, or any sexual experience outside of marriage is what God hates. Uh, and there's no such thing as a marriage between people of the same sex. So that's not marriage, and so that's something God hates, that's sin. Uh, so promiscuity and homosexuality, Scripture throughout, it would be very easy to do a, a Bible study and show how God calls these things sin. But because culturally it's become so acceptable, and the, the thing is, well, we're all people, and you know, they just love each other, and it doesn't matter whether they're living together or not married, or whether they're a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, it doesn't matter. I mean, as long as they're committed to one another, isn't that the real thing we gain out of Scripture? is commitment. And it overlooks the specific, explicit proclamation of Scripture. And culture has sway, and instead of the pastor getting up and saying, thus says the word of God, he says, you know what? I'm struggling with this, beloved. I'm not, you know, I know people have interpreted in the traditional manner to mean this, but you know, I've talked to several, I've talked to several people who really love each other and, and they're living together or whatever. And they go down this road and people are kind of in this trance, and if they sit under that long enough, they start to think that muddle-headed like thought too. And they're unable to see anymore. Because certainly they know someone who is living one of these lifestyles. And I don't want to condemn them. This is just one example of how giving into this kind of thinking and this teaching will certainly lead many astray. And then ultimately what you have to do, if you stay in that kind of posture and want to keep studying the Bible, eventually you've got to deny the God of the Bible because there's just too much there that describes how we give specific direction. And so ultimately, this is what it means when we speak of the way of truth being blasphemed. Many will follow their sensuality. Many will be turned away from the truth as a result. That's their influence. It's real. It's true. But also notice their sure judgment in verse 3, in the second part of verse 3. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. There is a sure sense of predetermination here regarding false teachers. Uh, God, in this sense, has predetermined their destruction. Uh, false teachers actually serve in some sense, and I can't say that I can explain it completely to you, but I can evidence it uh, by these words of predetermination that you can see, and you can see in Jude, and you can see in Proverbs and other places. 
God has predetermined their destruction. Their being here, in some sense, is actually a sanctifying agent in the life of the church. It causes us to take account of what we believe. If there were no one teaching heresies, if you will, you would never have the opportunity to dig in deeper as to what the truth is. Uh, If there weren't counterfeit dollar bills out there, uh, you'd never really look close at what the real one is. And so we have to, we're forced to, by heresies affronting the church, to think about what it is that the Bible actually says. Uh, Jude uses this vivid language. Listen to Jude verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Those are the words of predetermination, the words of predestination. Unnoticed, long ago, were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Peter uses vivid examples of God's clear then judgment upon false teaching, false influence. Look at verse 4, the first example. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. I believe this is most likely a reference to the angelic beings known as the sons of God in Genesis 6, who intermarried with the daughters of men. Some say this is the fall of Satan. At any rate, uh, their falsity, their lack of, uh, of uh, honor and loyalty to God was met with sure judgment. Jude refers to this bizarre episode as well. And the, but the main point is the surety of God's addressing such sinful influence in verse 4. But verse 5, a second, a more vivid, at least a clear example to us. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he bought, brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You see here, Noah was a true teacher, a prophet of God. He was a herald of righteousness. God preserved him. But there's sure judgment for those who are propagating something else. And they were clearly present in Noah's day, false teachers, mockers of Noah, as he preached what God told him to preach, as he built the ark. Those who mocked him were not just mocking him, they were teaching others to mock him. And God met with severity and punishment and judgment those people. Surety is attached to judgment of those who are false teachers. We see it there in this example. But look at verse 6, a longer example also where you have uh, someone proclaiming the truth in the midst of ungodliness and God bringing judgment to the ungodly while saving those who are being truthful or are telling and proclaiming the truth. Verse 6, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day by after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And Lot is a complex guy, to say the least. And I don't know what influence he had over even his own household. But we can say that Lot was there in the midst of these uh, people who were living in great sin, rebellious, open sin. God was judging and bringing judgment to them swiftly and surely, all the while protecting Lot, who was preaching his word. God's judgment of false teachers is sure. We see it from these examples. And verse 9 emphasizes the surety of judgment once more. Then the Lord who knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And he gives those examples we just mentioned. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment till the day of judgment. Fact is, God will allow godlessness to go on for so long. Uh, To us, it may seem like a long time. And I know when I use the word swift or sure, you think, boy, there's a lot of things going on. But thankfully, even to us, he, does, he acts 
uh, swiftly in relationship to himself in eternity. But it's swift, nonetheless. False teachers, they appear like a flash, like a mist, the passage will say in our study next week. But God does not allow them to flourish for long, not long, in his economy anyways. The judgment of false teachers is sure, it is true, it is certain. Uh, They are, in a sense, but pawns in the sovereign Lord's hands to bring ultimately even glory to himself through them. We'll learn more of false teachers in the next two studies, but now I want to just take briefly two other points you have there on your outline and think in more general terms now. Uh, You may say, well, phew, I'm not a a false teacher. Amen, I'm glad you're not. Uh, But there is something we can learn in general about sin very quickly. First, we see that sin is dealt with swiftly. I, I mentioned just a moment ago that it's in God's economy that it's dealt with swiftly. But notice what it says in verse 1, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Uh, in God's economy, it is swift that he deals with this. And I want you to think of all the false teachers that you've ever known in history. How many of them are there? can't remember many, can you? They come and they go. There's someone you might be thinking of right now that you know he's a false teacher in the church. She's a false teacher in the church. But they'll come and they'll go. God very rarely gives a long ministry to one of these false teachers. They have a purpose and it's for sanctifying the church in some way bringing glory to God in some way, believe it or not, even through their destruction. It's swift, but it's also certain. You can be sure of it. This is not, there's never a time where the Trinity is up in heaven, uh, shocked at something that happens down on earth and has to rush together quickly to try to figure out how to handle it. Uh, Rather, verse 3 says, in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Uh, There are some who God has created for this purpose, as I've just alluded Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. 1 Peter 2 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Romans 9. Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? It's a fact of Scripture that he predetermines these things ultimately for his own glory. Lorraine Bettner says it so well in his wonderful book, uh, on predestination. He says, although this doctrine is harsh, it is nevertheless scriptural. And since it is so plainly taught in scripture, we can assign no reason for the opposition which it has met other than the pure ignorance and unreasoned prejudice with which men's minds have been filled when they come to study it. The church has been corrupted and cursed in almost every age by undue confidence of men in their reasoning and their reasoning powers. He concludes by saying the condemnation of the non-elect is designed primarily to furnish an external exhibition before men and angels of God's hatred for sin. Or in other words, it is to be eternal manifestation of the justice of God, one of the divine attributes which apart from it could never have been adequately appreciated. You shouldn't dodge this stuff. It's there. It's for God's glory. And complete will be that judgment of sin in general. Verse 9, and the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the, right, unri- the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. All of this drives me to Jesus. I mean, just reading this drives me to Christ again, realizing my works cannot save me. Uh, my wickedness is too clear, and I've got to go to Christ. 
I mean, when you study this and you just dig into it and, and get, uh, get, get your hands dirty in this stuff, you realize you've got to have Christ. You've got to have Christ. And that's what comfort believers can take is the last point. Remember, the book's about growing in grace and knowledge. But remember what we have studied in the book. In, in the book in the beginning, we have redemption. That's ultimate salvation. Uh, this is true of the godly. 2 Peter 1. <clears throat> Listen to what it says at the beginning once again. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So our salvation is wrapped up or hidden in Christ. Verse 2 of 2 Peter 1. May grace and peace be multiplied in you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We are in Christ. We have been given the means to make our calling and election sure. Uh, these two examples give us examples of people that God upheld. Think about it. Lot and Noah and how God upheld them. Are they perfect? Surely not. But God upheld them and manifested himself through them. Noah did what God said in his word. Lot clearly preached what God said in his word. In both cases, culture rejected him, rejected them, but in the end, they were saved physically, and we can assume ultimately spiritually by what, what else scripture reveals. We have redemption, ultimate salvation. This gives us comfort. But also, we've been given the truth. We see what false teachers do with the truth. This should drive us to God, to Christ, and to his word. Verse 2 of chapter 2 that we've just read, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Hey, we've got the truth. Uh, their road and their influence leads people away from it, but we know better, so we have the truth. And this refers back now to what he has already said, and having something more sure, Peter says, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. As a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In verse 20 of last week, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone else's interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have the truth to protect us, to uphold us, to guide us. And ultimately we see in our text before us in the seventh verse, and I conclude with this, God provides protection for his people. It's okay to have a certain sense of of uh, fear, if you will, and I don't mean scaredness, but just the same way a child knows not to go to something dangerous, whether it be the road or picking up a tool they shouldn't mess with or whatever it is, there's a, a healthy fear about it that drives us to that which protects us. And recognizing the fate of false teachers for the godly, for the one who is in relationship with Christ, will be driven into his protective arms all the more. That's the purpose of this for us. Verse 7, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, and he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows, and then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. It may be true, and it may be the days coming soon, I don't know, where preaching the truth gets you in legal trouble. But God knows how to rescue the righteous. And we ought not give in to that when we have just a history of God's faithfulness to upholding those who uphold his word. This is one of the many reasons why we're receiving these warnings about false teachers, and we'll receive more. Let's pray. Lord, thank you.